Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap unless you've mastered uh, going out and grabbing some weeds and some greens and just scrambling them with your eggs because that can actually be pretty pretty cheap. Um, and uh, But I'm also a person that's feeling very hopeful. I'm feeling hopeful about 2021. And in the words of the youngest inaugural poet to ever perform for a U.S. presidential swearing-in ceremony, quote, there is always a light. If only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. And that light is is interwoven and connected and weave and woven with nature, with soil, with air, with water, with light, with the living world. Um, on today's show, we're going to be talking with someone who's worked internationally on food justice, started a seven-acre farm where his family grew 90% of their own food in Canada, helped create a collaborative online direct market uh, direct uh, marketplace for farmers and eaters to connect, supported the creation of an eco-village, uh, worked at a friend's school in Costa Rica, then moved to Minnesota to serve on the friend's school at, in St. Paul, and is now the executive director of Minnesota State Horticulture Society. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, uh, Rick Julinson. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Good to be here. Yeah, it's fun to have you. You've had such an interesting background. Um, tell me a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, even as you recite that, the word privilege is what comes to my mind. I mean, yeah. what a privileged life I have had. And I, I feel so fortunate to have lived where I've lived and be able to give back the way I've been able to. Um, yeah, I've, when I took this job, I had to think, how does this tie in all of my other experiences? And it pulls in my growing experience, my desire to serve the community, my deep desire to have social justice and racial equity and food security. And this is a place where I can bring all those different threads of my life into one place. It's really gratifying. Well, and the connections between local and global are actually quite um, intricate and complex. I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, we're, we've talked about this a lot on Food Freedom Radio is, you know, globally, um, the way we do food, it's a driver of climate change, it's a driver of inequity. And so if we were able to have a food, a food system that um, is aligned with our, I think, our, our light and our deepest aspirations, it'd be a much cooler system. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be funner. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've always tried to work towards local food economies. And that's one of the things that our horticultural society works on here. Um, we've got the Garden in a Box program helping teach people how to start their own gardens and how to save their seeds and how to process the food so they can become gardeners. I noticed a lot of our instinctual reactions when the pandemic started last year was to start a garden. That's the first thing my wife and I did in March is we brought up an old table and set it up under a window in our dining room and started seedling. We mm-hmm. just wanted to know that there would be food no matter what was going to happen going on. And Again, we have the privilege of having a dining room big enough to be able to start a whole bunch of seedlings, uh, and we took advantage of that. But we saw it all over the state and all over North America, people just the growing interest in gardening, the, the need for the food security, the need for community, and the need for the, the health benefits, just to be out there with your hands in the soil and being part of growing. And I know on your website there's um, some good guidelines on how to do community garden safe in the age, safely in the age of COVID. Yeah, that was a real benefit. Um, that at a time where there was so little that we could do outside of our homes, gardening was one of them. We could be in our own backyards or on our patio or in the kitchen window and growing things in containers or in the ground. 
we could still be a community garden. I mean, distance, of course, in a safe way, but it was a way that we could be together and be active while still being safe. You know, one of the guests on the show I had last week said, you know, even my little spider plant makes me happy. Um, and so there, there's, there's, some, there's some really solid research about how connection to nature is so important for our mental health. Yeah, I was actually just reading an article today. One of our staff sent um, some research done right here in the Twin Cities documenting specifically the, the mental health and physical health benefits of gardening. Um, a lot of mental health, like a lot of just people are happier when they're growing, when they're outside and they're, they're digging in the earth. And, of course, the physical health benefits, the reduction. If you've got better food, it's going to bring down diabetes and heart attack. People are going to sleep better. Less ADHD, kids are going to concentrate better in school. There's a whole plethora of health benefits that have been always been there but are much more recognized and perhaps more crucial at this time. Yeah, I mean, it literally helps be grounded. <laughs> literally, yeah. <laughs> Well, and the, the, there's evidence about kids and eating more vegetables. I mean, uh, you know, uh, for whatever reason, it's like, oh, yuck, vegetables. But if you have kids picking green beans, um, you know, they love it. It's 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 part of our it, – it's it's innate. Oh, my, my farm in Canada is just a seven-acre farm. It's small. It's mostly just for my own consumption. We used to sell things at the farm stand and sell a bit of meat and eggs. But – we became the place where all the neighbor kids would come, sometimes to help garden, but more often just to pick. And I ended up having to make part of the garden the, where kids could eat whatever they wanted. Um, so I planted a lot of blueberries in the back part, which were my blueberries, to get me through the winter, and then the front part that the kids could eat as much as they wanted. Yeah. And we'd look out our back window, and I would see literally like a dozen kids out there feasting on beans, on green beans, fresh off the of the plant or eating all the cherry tomatoes they stuff in their mouths. I mean, what a beautiful thing to see. I know. And there's, I mean, there's another thing we've talked about a long time is that vision of just having all those vegetables all over the place. And, and I mean, the benefits are so manifold, good for pollinators, good for soil, um, help, um, uh, uh, help just create more harmony um, and calmer as society. Yeah. I mean, we certainly... When the pandemic hit, my first reaction was, I want to get back to my farm. That was my, I planted things here, but honestly, I just wanted to get back onto my land and just feel like I can be out there walking and growing and sharing food. One of the things I learned through some reading while I was actively farming was the expression to cut corners. And nowadays, it's, well, it's, it's seen as like a bad thing, like you're being cheap, but what it comes from is, there used to be a tradition where when you were farming and you were harvesting, you would leave the very edges unharvested. And that was the part that was for sharing. And people could come by and take from the edges what they wanted. And so a farmer who cuts corners, that means that they're going right to the edge and taking everything from themselves and not leaving anything back for the mm. community. Yeah, and there's a, in permaculture, the edge is um, a really important spot. Um, very fertile spot. So um, yeah, that's in, perma in permaculture. You always try to do things in waves. You don't have a straight edge. You you have even more of that intersection between zones, and that's such a rich, vibrant part of the garden. 
So, Rick, we want to talk more about the Minnesota Horticulture Society, the history, which mm-hmm. um, it's not, it's, it's fun. It's a very old organization, over 150 yeah. years. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Canada, and my country was born in 1867, <laughs> so we predate Canada. <laughs> we were founded in 1866 at the State Fair. Yeah, but I want to also learn a little bit more about your personal background. So did you grow up in Canada? Yeah, I grew up in a small town outside of Vancouver. Uh, my dad was a, a tiny little gardener beside where we parked the car, and I always thought he was crazy, but he just... If he could grow four radishes and stand in the garden and eat them fresh out of the ground, he was a happy man. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that is the essence of happiness is just to sit there and, and, and have the fresh foods right from your mouth. And, um, you know, it's we were hunter-gatherers. Human, the human animals were hunter-gatherers a long, long time. So it's sort of like going back and riding a bike. You know, there's a fresh a phrase, like once you learn how to ride a bike, you always know it. So, But that... That idea of picking food directly from the garden is—it's it, innate. It's—it's it's deep in our um, soul. Yes, but honestly, it didn't enter my soul as a child. I just thought he was crazy. And then, at various times in my life, I intellectually started to really embrace gardening. I, I understood its importance. I lived in a community in Georgia, in the south, south of the state, working with immigrants and refugee families, and we had organic garden there and I right away volunteered to work on it and then I just never really went out there like in my head it made perfect sense Mm -hmm. but I didn't yet feel that calling and then um, that was before graduate that was right after graduate school in Ohio and then I ended up with Habitat for Humanity in Africa and I ended up spending seven years in various countries in Africa and once again I was living in rural farming and fishing communities it was all around me. It was central to our economy and our community and the whole rhythm of life. And yet I still didn't actually do it myself. I would go once in a while and help harvest the rice or something because it was a great community event. But it wasn't something I was personally called to do. For me, it didn't really happen until I became, until I read the book Fast Food Nation mm. and then Animal Vegetable Miracle. And those are the two books that made me really become committed to being a locavore, to eating as much local food as possible, to reduce transport, to support small-scale gardens that are better for the earth and better for our society. And then the next logical step from that was to become a producer. So I left my job, um, in fact, left Vancouver City and moved to Vancouver Island and bought the farm and became a stay-at-home dad and a farmer. And I, I took that leap of faith because I still hadn't been doing it. But, but the, the process of buying a farm and, again, having the privilege to be able to buy a seven-acre farm, I do not take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned me into a farmer. And that first year, we didn't know what we were doing. And we just went and started turning the earth and taking any workshop we could and reading all the books. Um, before, there were such, such great resources online, so it really was books. And we put things in the ground, and they started coming up. And it was revolutionary. I spent seven years transforming myself um, into a person who appreciates the cycle of life and my place in it. And we would, at dinner time, we would know where our food came from. We would have meals that were 100% within 100 feet of our kitchen table or 100 yards. And... We could name, you know, oh, who who picks the salad tonight? 
and oh, we're having a burger that's made from our cow whose name was Blossom, and we would have Blossom burgers for dinner, and we we appreciated it, and we were able to preserve all of our food for the winter. So in February, I was going down and pulling up fresh in a jar vegetables and fruit and. Yeah, so it, so, it was a long good. time. I must admit that I had a, a little... long time before I transitioned from appreciating it in my head to feeling it in my soul and having that become action. Yeah, yeah, that that moving towards action. Um, well, we're going to take a little action right now. We're going to start. Uh, we're going to take a break, and um, we're going to be back. We're going to talk more about food. We're going to talk about what is the idea of food freedom. How do we how do we move in community with food? Um, and with us uh, is Rick Julinson, the new executive director of the Minnesota State Horticulture Society. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Satisfy my soul, babe. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and right now we're talking with the new executive director of the Minnesota State Horticulture Society, uh, Rick Julinson. Uh, Rick, um, so before we went on break, you were talking about um, in Canada, um, you uh, started becoming a farmer. And tell us a little bit more about that experience. <laughs> well, as, as I started to say, it was really overwhelming at first, and but I found like every one of us do when we start gardening, this a real community that came up and supported us and said, we want you to succeed because we need your food. There was no competition. Maybe different farm stands at the, uh, the farmer's market might feel a bit of competition, but I wasn't there. Um, but people were excited that, wow, now one more person is helping us become food sustainable within our community. And I remember going to a a seminar and the guest speaker was Percy, I forget his name, Joseph W. He had a lawsuit against Monsanto. Mm-hmm. And the, at one point they said, everyone who's a farmer, please stand up. And I stood up and I wasn't sure if I should, but it's like, I own a farm, I'm planting, I'm going to be selling. <laughs> and everyone in the room applauded us. And it was just so moving that there was that appreciation for people who make that choice to grow food and share it. And inspired me to do even more. It inspired me to start running uh, first cows and then buffalo, just two at a time on my land, so that I could be providing meat for my community as well as my family. It inspired me to get more chickens. We at one point had 25 chickens and um, uh, layers, and then we did meat birds as well. So I kept, I, I say I, but I hope my wife is listening because I mean, she really is the driving force of all this. So we um, just became more and more committed providing as much quality local food as we could and selling it at a very affordable price. In fact, we didn't put a price. We might have a suggestion, but we had a farm stand at the bottom of the driveway. People took what they needed and dropped whatever they could into the slot. And every day I came home and there was money in that slot and there was food gone, and I felt that was a good exchange. Did I was going to say, did, did you learn, what did you learn about food freedom um, during that time of, of being a farmer? <laughs> you know, I, I had never heard the term food freedom before uh, this radio station. So I've, I've been pondering a lot about that. I've always talked about food security. And, I mean, it's at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If we're hungry, it's hard to think about anything else. I, I've 
by choice been hungry. I've never out of out of my control been hungry. But even if by choice you're hungry, it's hard to think about helping someone else or creating security for yourself. I've seen hungry school children at my schools in Kenya falling asleep or not able to concentrate. And so we started a feeding program there. And then we started community gardens at each school so that we could feed these kids. So for me, food security is that everyone deserves to have quality, access to quality food, culturally appropriate, ideally local, because food security really, I lived on an island. And if there had been an earthquake or some reason that the ferries couldn't run to our island, we would have been out of food in six days mm-hmm. on the island. I would have had applesauce for the whole year because I can't <laughs> my own. But, you know, as an island, we would have, I mean, that's, that's the definition yeah. of food. But one, one cannot it's live on food. applesauce alone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So food security is well known, but then I, I've been trying to puzzle the difference between food security and food freedom. And the word freedom for me invokes social justice. It invokes looking out for each other. It invokes rights. It makes me think about the inequitable access to food and to land and to growing resources. Um, Inequitable largely based on race or economic status. Um, So I'm seeing food freedom as really being, does everyone in our society have the access they deserve as human beings to the food that will keep them nourished and let them then do the higher pursuits that they want to do. Um, I, we talked about this in my staff meeting today because I didn't know how I was going to answer this question. Um, and some of the inputs my fellow team members talked about were, it starts as basic as, oh, I want freedom from not always having to cook for my kids every day, um, but also not being controlled by food, that we can get our needs met but not have it rule our lives, not be bound to diet, not be bound to in unhealthy processed foods. I actually, at times in my life, fast one day a week just to remind myself that I have some power over my food decisions and I can re-divert that energy in other ways. Hmm. That's all interesting. That is fascinating. And the whole interconnection of uh, our my, my freedom is dependent on your freedom and that dependency doesn't decrease my freedom. It actually increases my freedom. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, we're, we're absolutely one community. And that's never more obvious than around food issues in my mind. You think of the image of breaking bread together, how as in every community, every society and culture I've ever lived in, food is a central way of bringing people together, of sharing, of demonstrating peace and goodwill. And then on the flip side, back to my island, if the ferries have stopped running in six days from now, everyone's getting hungry. All of my personal food security, all that applesauce in my basement, suddenly is inequitable and suddenly is an issue because other people know, oh, Rick's got all the applesauce. So then I'm faced with, do I share my applesauce and go hungry earlier? Do I hoard it? Do I build fences and keep people out? So my, you know, quite literally, my safety and my security depend on everyone around me also being safe and secure. 
Yeah, and I, I don't remember the economist that was saying this right now, um, I, uh, but I know someone was saying that uh, their wealth was really in the wealth of the community. It, it's actually the wealth is in my neighbor's stomach, which means that, you know, mm. the society is um, we, we recognize our interdependence on each other and we build out from there. Um, you know, it's not like hoarding my little cans of tuna in the cave, but how do I create a system which is um, anti-fragile, and 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 I think that's that's the beauty of the philosophy around permaculture, right? I mean, uh, permaculture it grows every year. It, it it it's it's so. I mean, again, if we had hazelnuts and chestnut trees all over the place, um, and gardens really common, it it'd be so much better on so many levels. Um, and that's that's uh, that's part of the mission right now, and a lot of a lot of people are are moving this way, um, and you know I, I, this is this is becoming I think a shared vision in the Twin Cities. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I feel, and I'm still fairly new. I've only been in the Twin Cities for three years, and only with the Horticultural Society since July. But I do feel a growing awareness of our interconnectedness. The pandemic has brought that out in people. The murder of George Floyd has really increased a lot of people's awareness around inequity and justice and increased people's commitment to doing something about it, whether that's jumping in your garden or making donations or helping out in a program or participating in a program because you need it. I feel people are more open to expressing their needs, finding their place in this society and community and fully owning that. And having a place. So, I mean, when we find a place, um, we actually also give a place to others. And when I think of um, someone I've talked to a lot, I mean, the, the problem with so many people right now is they don't have a place. And when you don't have a place, you're in an unhealthy spot and you, you have these needs. And so, you you know, you maybe cling to identities um, or cling to something like, you know, cling to some images. But what you're really beyond, what sits behind all that is just a need to belong. And yeah, uh, okay. yeah, and we're going to need to take another break because we, you know, belong to the belong to the clock. But we're going to come back, Rick, talk a little bit more about your experience in Costa Rica, a little bit more in the French School, um, and then get more into the details of the Minnesota State Horticulture Society. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota, and we'll be right back. What's wrong, girl? You don't treat me like you used to do. Everything about you. Back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headland, and we're talking with the uh, new executive director of the Minnesota State Horticulture Society, uh, Rick Julinson. And uh, Rick, um, okay, so tell us a little bit more. Then, when you moved to Canada, you also helped start a new way of farmers to connect with people who eat. Yeah, and the, the, the rural area that I lived in, we actually had two farmers markets that merged into one, and it was very successful. Every Saturday, everyone was out there, just like they are here in the Twin Cities. But what we did is we came together with those same farmers and then we brought in um, major consumers, for example, restaurants or supermarkets. And we asked, what could we do to create a larger market for these local producers? So they had a more reliable and hopefully easier way to also sell some of their produce. And we came up with the idea of an online marketplace. And so 
individuals or restaurants or stores or whoever could go online and, well, sorry, first the farmers would list what they have for sale that week. And these are things that they haven't harvested yet, but they know are ready for harvest. And then people would make their orders and the cutoff was, say, Tuesday. And then that order would come to the farmer. So that farmer knows that they have a pre-ordered and pre-paid sale. And then they go out and harvest just that and would bring it in, I think it was on Thursday, they would bring it into our local food organization, an organization somewhat like the Good Harvest here in St. Paul. And we had a storage area there with refrigerators and tables. And so all the, the goods would come in, the individual customers' orders would be filled, and then they had a time they could come and pick it up. So for the customers, they could get fresh produce, exactly what they wanted from the convenience of their computer, and then just have to come in and pick it up and it's already ready for them. Um, so for some people who don't enjoy the experience of walking through a farmer's market, they found that easier. And for others, they liked having access twice a week instead of just once to farmer's market type goods. And for the producer, one of the worries about being at a farmer's market is the first time I ever did it, I harvested way too much lettuce. I arrived at the farmer's market with like 50 bags of lettuce. I sold four. I spent all that money on cookies for my kids. And I went home with 46 bags of lettuce. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a big that problem. That, to be honest, that was the last farmer's market I ever participated in, actually. Um, it wasn't my style of selling. And huge respect to those who do it. It's a lot of work. So this provided them a way of a risk-free farmer's market environment. And it supplemented the work they were doing in the physical farmer's market. So they were still going there. It didn't cut into anyone's business. It added to their business and it added to the opportunities for the consumers. And we did that, gosh, almost 10 years ago. And I was online this morning and they're still up and running. And it has a fun name. Very satisfying. I know. It has a really fun name. Yeah, we were in the Cowichan Valley. Cowichan means the warm land or land of the sun. And so we called it, instead of the co-op, we called it the Cow-op. The co-op. And people can look at it at, at cow-op.ca. And then, yeah. and then while you're there, you also um, did something called, um, or participated in something called Our Eco Village, um, which people can look at and watch this beautiful video. And that's at ourecovillage.org. So tell us about that. Yeah, it's O-U-R, One United Resource. So they, they were, were there a long time before I arrived, but when we first moved to the valley, our farmhouse wasn't ready. So we lived there for a month, living in a tent in the fall in Canada. It was really cold. And at that point, the eco-village wasn't very developed. There weren't a lot of common buildings. Um, but it's, a, it's an organization dedicated to permaculture. They do permaculture design training to green building. We've, there are buildings now on the land that are made out of sod, out of um, all sorts of different natural products, straw bale. Cobb, um, and then sustainable farming and sustainable community. Like, how do we live together in community and share resources and resolve social problems and look at power dynamics and inequities within our small group? There are some people who live there full time and some like me who just participated from the outside. So I had been doing some work as a consultant for them, doing some fundraising and organizational development. And then they invited me for a time to be their executive director which happily was half time, so I could still do my farming and other commitments. And during that time, we were able to 
got the first co-op mortgage in Canada. Um, the, the banking system doesn't like co-ops. They don't believe that a group of people committed to working together and sharing an economy can reliably pay back a loan. And we had to develop a whole business plan around how we were bringing in ecotourism tied into our workshops, tied into our farm work, tied into our accommodations in the national, natural buildings. And we were able to create the steady revenue stream that let us get the communal mortgage. Because before that, unfortunately, it had been in the name of one person, which is very difficult for power dynamics for that mm-hmm. person and for others wanting to invest. Um, so that eco village is still going, still growing, still struggling with the pandemic, like any business and community is doing. But they are one united resource. And they're a community that's based on Vancouver Island, but has people all over the world who are supporters, people like me sitting here in St. Paul. I still consider myself a member of that community. Well, and I absolutely love the video. I mean, the video just speaks um, so much from the heart as to what that potential. I don't know. It's just, it's just, uh, it just seems like a funner way of living. (laughs) It's a lot of fun. And at times it was a lot of strain. It's a lot of tight social dynamics for a people like us, most of us North Americans who expect more privacy and more division of my personal life and my community life economic strain when things weren't working well so i mean it's not perfect but it's one model it's an experiment in what we've been talking about for the last half hour of how do we live in community how do we share our resources how do we tie our fate into that of our neighbors how do we build a beloved community and that's one attempt to make all that happen yeah and this week started with martin luther king day and that idea of how do we build the beloved community can that be connected to gardening and growing food? Those Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's talking about a society based on justice, equal opportunity, love for each other. Gardening is the epitome of that. Gardening is the ultimate, can be the ultimate shared activity, both in the practice and the produce that comes out of it. And we've been talking about food this whole time. I just want to emphasize that this equally applies to to flowers, to creating beauty in our world. It applies to planting pollinator-friendly plants and native grasses, you know, maintaining original plants that were born and grown here and not only having imported and hybrid plants. So it's, everything we're saying applies also to ornamental growing, to Without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, And then uh, you found yourself in Costa Rica at the Friends School. Um, And I know I was very pleased I was able to visit a friend in Costa Rica a couple times. And there's just a visceral feeling of community that I felt, even though I was an outsider. I mean, just was on the buses. You'd ride the buses and a woman would be (laughs) breastfeeding. And just the way people smiled and were with each other was in the atmosphere. Um, Did you find that too? Yeah, particularly in Monteverde, which is literally up in the cloud for us. We would have clouds going through our classrooms as we were teaching. Um, And it's a community that was founded uh, about 50 years ago, I'm sorry, almost seven years ago now, uh, by Quakers who moved from the United States to start a new way of living together and in partnership with the people who are already in that community. So it is, it is a very special place in the world where people had to rely on each other literally for their survival and create their own social world and community in a very deliberate way. 
And things are much easier there now, and we can fly in and out. Um, but that fee, that almost pioneer feeling of relying on each other and making our own fun and creating our own economy is still there. So it's a community that knows how to welcome new people and knows how to just bring out the best in everyone. Okay, someone new's here. What can you do with us? What are you, what special gift are you bringing to this community? Where it's do you belong? That, Where do you belong? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then you're at the Friends School in St. Paul, and we've talked about in the previous years that Friends School is really known for their Friends plant cell. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about the plant cell, what happened in 2020? Whew, that was a ride. Yeah. <laughs> because we were, yeah, we were trying to make decisions based on constantly changing information about where the pandemic was going. The plant sale is the single biggest fundraiser, <laughs> like a any organization could imagine, as well as the service it provides to the community. And the prospect of losing that revenue was very difficult. But over time, we just came to realize it was, first of all, not going to be possible or even legal or safe to do it in person. So we had to let go of that. And then we had to come together as a community to say, what can we salvage? How can we still provide the service? People want their plants. They want their bulbs. They want their seeds. So how much of that can we do online? How much of that can we do in satellite sales? So, for example, I had my entire backyard was filled with plants. And then people with pre-orders came to my front. I carried them out, put them on the sidewalk, and then people picked them up. So it was a safe way of still providing access for some people. And then we also had our commitment to our growers. And the plant sale is huge. It grosses millions of dollars in sales. And that is a key part of the survival of a lot of these small-scale growers the, the friend school buys their plants from. And I suppose legally we just could have reneged on all those contracts or declared bankruptcy or something, but that would have put hardworking family growers out of business or seriously hurt them. So instead of that, we worked in partnership with them and said, how can we do this in a way that's still going to let you survive? Do you have, are there parts of our order that you haven't started yet that we can let go of? Are there parts that you've started growing that sadly actually make more sense to not keep growing than to keep investing in? Can we help you sell some of the other stuff to recoup the loss? And then through the means I just said, how can we still buy some of it from you and sell it so that we cover our costs? So the friend sale at the friend school actually, I think about netted zero on the experience instead of potentially losing up to half a million dollars of commitments. And to my knowledge, all of the growers who regularly serve the Friends School survived and are back this year to be able to work with them again. Wow. Well, we're going to be done our last segment, and I, we better cover something about the Minnesota State Horticulture Society. <laughs> so I want, to, oh, yeah. I want to make sure, because there's so much for us to talk about it. But just um, so give us an overview of the Minnesota State Horticulture Society. Well, we're 155 years old. We are at heart a membership organization. We have over 9,000 members spread throughout the state. Um, so that's that's the, the number one thing we do is serve our members. And our members are people who care about growing, whether it's flowers or food, whether it's in Twin Cities or greater Minnesota, whether they're new or they've been doing this for 20 years, a lot more experts than me in their organization. <laughs> Oh, I mean, they have more expertise than me, is what I'm trying to say. We have master gardeners. We have amazingly knowledgeable people. 
We also have industry partners, nurseries and suppliers are what we call discount partners. So they're helping, they provide actually a discount at the till for all of our members. So it's a way of building those connections again. And so we serve our members through those discounts and through our Northern Gardener magazine, which comes out every two months and is just the most beautiful and the most informative magazine you can imagine. Yeah. We're going to take a break. We're in the process. Okay. We're going to take a break and we're going to be back. We're going to talk more about the Minnesota Horticulture Society. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. a beautiful song. I just love it. Um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Um, I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're going to have the sun come out. It's a new year, 2021. Very uh, fun conversation with the new executive director of the Minnesota State Horticulture Society, uh, Rick Jolinson. And Rick, before we went to break, you're talking a little bit about the Minnesota Gardener magazine. And so how do people get that magazine? Um, well, a couple of ways. You can become a member and that's, it's a $62 annual membership, and that includes all the subscriptions, plus those other benefits I mentioned. And by the way, um, we do have a partnership with AM 950 Freedom Radio. You can mm-hmm. get a $15 discount by using the code AM 950. Um, or, or there is a possibility of just subscribing to the magazine. But in that case, you're not getting the discount partners. You're not providing extra support for the other programs I'm about to talk about. And we are about to start offering the magazine in a lot more store locations. That's a new initiative for this year. It's such good material. We want to get it out to more people. Great. Cool. And so, yeah, let's talk about some of your programs, um, the Garden in Box. Yeah. So this is a program where we provide all of the materials, including a, like a round cage and the soil and the seeds and the information, the instruction for people, for organizations to start their own gardens. These go out to schools, they go to nonprofit organizations. Um, and the need for this was so great last year in the interest, we actually doubled the number of sites that we brought these to. So we served over 5,000 people in this program last year. 2,300 of them were children aged 2 to 18. And it's a way of just introducing, introducing gardens, gardening, and building some skills and interests. So hopefully they then go home tell their parents and then they start a garden at home in their windowsill or in their backyard or they join a community garden. So it's, we're really excited at this way of reaching a new generation of gardeners nice. and reaching more diverse populations so that more people can garden and share in this. And you have just a ton of resources and information. So classes, like you have a class coming up on February 2nd, pruning trees and shrubs um, on uh, uh, February 9th, uh, starting seeds. And these classes are $5 if you're a member or $10 if you're not. So, And a huge website on um, resources. I mean, pretty much you have a question about gardening, you can find it there along with some cool recipes. Mm-hmm. So education is a huge emphasis for us. So as you say, we've got all these classes. I took a class last week on dahlias, actually a couple of days ago, and one last week on winter seeding. So I now have nine milk cartons with seeds out in the snow in my backyard, ready to grow. 
And the website you referred to is northerngardener.org. We have a resource hub that we're aggressively building this year. So it can be a central place to go to get the information you need about how to grow, how to preserve, also um, a dynamic calendar of what classes and events are happening, not just with the society, but with all of our partners in the community as well. So we really want that information to be out there. And once again, the need was and interest was so great last year, we grew from 1,200 attendees to 3,200 people participating in our online webinars last year. So much hunger out there for information. Yeah, and for this vision. And so uh, you have a new strategic plan coming up? Yeah, so we're really trying to tie together all the things we do. Can I just mention one more program? Sure. Which is Minnesota Green, which is a longstanding program we have where we collect donated plant materials, uh, mostly from nurseries. The Friends School plant sale, for example, anything that doesn't sell there comes to us. And then we redistribute that to nonprofit organizations, community gardens, so we're keeping the plants out of the landfill and getting them in back into the community where they can be used. And once and again, we tripled. We tripled the program last year. There was so much interest in demand in gardening. So it's another great way that we're serving the community. Right. And, and then we have our seed projects. So I do a garden with the Open Door uh, Food Pantry in Egan. So that, and so that Minnesota Green program is vital because it costs a lot of money to buy these plants. And so and, and, and yet there's some plants that get wasted. So finding a connection there and being that um, to be able to make those connections is really um, um, growing work. They're important. Mm-hmm. And we're exploring if we can provide a service where individuals can donate a house plant they don't want anymore and find ah. a new home for it. We're sort of, we're working on the logistics for that, but yeah, there's That's so great. many ways that, again, just weaving our community together. But you mentioned our strategic plan. It's, it's hopefully going to be approved next week. So I might be leaking a bit early, but um, our mission statement that we're planning to now endorse is cultivating a healthy, diverse and sustainable community of Northern gardeners. So we're emphasizing Northern Gardeners because that's one thing special about us and our magazine is that it's for this region. It's not just general gardening advice. It's the things that we care about and affect us. But we're really trying to emphasize how we're at the intersection of so many different community and societal needs. You know, that, that agriculture is the basis of this. Health, diversity, sustainability in the environment and all these programs we've talked about, they're directly affecting these key issues. So we wanted a, a statement that really reflected our commitment to making a difference at that level. And then our key initiatives are expanding our education program, um, including this resource hub, increasing our impact through our programs and through partnerships. We want to deepen our partnerships with the Arboretum, with the Nursery and Landscape Association with all these great organizations already doing great work, and we want to support them. And we want to strengthen our membership and diversify our membership base. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's been a fun conversation, um, and people can get more information by going to northerngardener.org. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Food Freedom Radio, and uh, thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. <laughs>